from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 12th. Today, the fight inside the Justice Department, the lingering questions in the Democratic primary, and an ongoing fear about electability. So on Tuesday, four career prosecutors, all of whom had been prosecuting Roger Stone, the president's close personal friend, quit the case. I'm Matt Zapatowski. I'm a national security reporter here at The Post. And so this was widely interpreted as somewhat of an act of protest. So why did these prosecutors resign? There's no real other way to interpret this than as an act of protest. So we sort of have to flash back to the Roger Stone case because he's kind of critical here. So Roger Stone, as I mentioned, is a confidant of President Trump. It is alleged that I was less than truthful with Congress. That's false. He was really kind of the linchpin to potentially getting information from WikiLeaks that would benefit the president's campaign. Um, That never really amounted to anything he was claiming to be this guy. He lied to Congress about his efforts in that respect. He was convicted back in November of lying to Congress, obstructing the investigation of witness tampering. And he is about to be sentenced. He's scheduled to be sentenced here later this month. Well, I I feel kind of violated. I mean, I'm accused of a series of nonviolent process crimes. So before sentencing, prosecutors have to file a sentencing recommendation. They have to say what penalty he deserves. So that is due earlier this week. Over the weekend, there's intense debate inside the U.S. Attorney's Office and at the Justice Department about what that recommendation should be. In almost every other case, almost every other case, the Mueller team have said this person deserves what's called a guideline sentence, the sentence that federal guidelines call for. And what would that be for for this conviction? What prosecutors wanted here was seven to nine years, which which is high. So there's debate. Prosecutors want to go with guidelines, seven to nine years. Their bosses, Justice Department brass, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office brass, are kind of pushing against them. And there's this tension leading up to the filing. We don't really know what's going to happen. But then it comes out, and it's a recommendation for a guideline sentence, seven to nine years. The four career prosecutors sign on to that. The U.S. Attorney in D.C., a guy named Tim Shea, signs on to that. Presumably it's over, right? So this is Monday. Early Tuesday morning rolls around, and the president tweets his frustration with that recommendation. How do you think the sentencing is too is too, too lengthy? Yeah, essentially, it's essentially being too hard on him, and that this is outrageous. What exactly did he tweet? So he tweeted that this is a horrible and very unfair situation. That the real crimes were on the other side, as nothing happens to them, and that he quote cannot allow this miscarriage of justice with an exclamation point. So he's pretty upset, and this is early in the morning too. I mean, I didn't. I was asleep when this when this came through, as I bet most people were. So what happened after that? So everyone is wondering, you know, is this going to cause tension between Trump and the Justice Department? Is this, you know, the moment where Barr kind of falls? like every attorney general and law enforcement official before him has. But that did not turn out to be the case. Later on Tuesday, a Justice Department official, a senior Justice Department official, began telling reporters that the Justice Department was, quote, shocked by the sentencing recommendation, which is a little confusing as to how they could be shocked, but that they were shocked and that essentially they planned to undo it, that they would be filing a clarification 
later in the day. So that's essentially undercutting what prosecutors just did. It's like their Justice Department's claim is that they were blindsided by this recommendation by career prosecutors, despite the fact that there was debate all weekend about this. I I do want to stress that it's hard to understand how they could truly be blindsided, but that's their claim. They say that they're going to undo essentially what prosecutors recommended. So they basically threw their own prosecutors under the bus. And even though they didn't say this, it would appear that their change in the sentencing recommendation was either in response to or at least in alignment with what the president wanted. It was definitely in alignment with what the president had said. So clearly you could view it that way. I should say that they, on the record, Kerry Kupek, who's a spokesperson for the Justice Department, has said that neither the president nor anyone at the White House had talked to the Justice Department in the days leading up to this about stone sentencing. And she also claimed, again, on the record, that the decision to undo what prosecutors had done was made before the tweet. They did not reveal it before the tweet. You know, they didn't say immediately after this sentencing recommendation was filed by career prosecutors, oh, that was a mistake, whoops, misfire. It was only after the tweet that they said something about it, but their claim is that the decision was not a result of the tweet. So I could understand why the prosecutors would be irritated and frustrated by this if it seems like their bosses aren't really listening to them. But on a larger scale, why is this a problem or at least a point of concern for a lot of people? In a lot of cases, there is debate about what prosecutors should recommend as the sentence. And it is very often the case that line prosecutors want to go really hard. They have sort of a more personal stake in a in a case than their supervisors. And their supervisors say, well, did you consider this? Did you consider this? So debate about sentencing is very common. This case is unique because this involves the president's friend, right? And the president has been outspoken about this case and other cases that the special counsel brought. He feels like this whole investigation that would lead to charges against Roger Stone was an injustice. So there clearly is like this political pressure, even if it's not direct, just because of what the president has said publicly. So the idea that career prosecutors would make a recommendation and then political pressure might lead to Justice Department leadership undoing that, that is unusual. I mean, it's beyond unusual. It's it's almost unheard of in the Justice Department. Because it's very different from how the Justice Department and the White House, how their relationship has historically worked. That even though the Justice Department is in the executive branch, that there is a sense that the prosecutors are objective, they're unswayed by political pressures, they're just going by the nature of the law. And especially in the case of a situation where they're investigating a friend of the president, that In the past, the president would absolutely not be involved at all. And it seems like, at least in this case, the firewall is starting to crumble. Yeah, especially on criminal cases, you see this wall of independence where the Justice Department is supposed to act. They are a part of the executive branch. That is true. But on criminal cases, they generally act independently of the White House. The White House doesn't tell them, charge this person, don't charge this person. That just is not something that is done because we don't want to see law enforcement be politicized in this country. What are some of the other ways with this case and with other things that are happening right now that we're seeing the Justice Department become more politicized or lose somewhat of its of its independence? 
Well, Attorney General Bill Barr has faced criticism for a long time about his posture towards the special counsel investigation. He's faced criticism for his descriptions of the special counsel's findings before they were released. He has sort of attacked the origins of the Russia probe, even when the inspector general found that it it was okay to open that case. Most recently, he's come under some fire after he acknowledged that he has created this mechanism for President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to get information to the Justice Department that might be beneficial to the president's campaign. So Rudy Giuliani is out there trying to spin up investigations into former Vice President Joe Biden and his son connected to their activities in Ukraine. Bill Barr recently announced that he has created this process so Giuliani can get his information to the department. That's sort of weird in a number of respects. One, the Justice Department is investigating Rudy Giuliani. Um, and two, uh, you know, I, I should say that Bill Barr frames this as, well, we, we can't say no to information that comes in. We have to look at all information. And he's framed this as information from Ukraine is sort of inherently unreliable. And so we need a mechanism to evaluate it. But it sounds something like that basically the Department of Justice will be investigating the Bidens at the behest of Rudy Giuliani, or at least Giuliani has like a special pathway toward pushing prosecutors to investigate the Bidens. So it's not quite the first. I mean, there is no indication that the Justice Department is actually investigating. They receive incoming information all the time. I don't want people to be left with the impression, oh, uh, Bill Barr has opened an investigation into the Bidens. Like, he has said he's created a process to evaluate Rudy Giuliani's information. And I should also stress that he has sort of emphasized Ukrainian information is inherently unreliable. So he's, just in the way he's he's created what's seems to be a special process. He hasn't used the word special, but he has said, I've created an intake process. That in itself is notable. You know, it's not like he's telling Rudy Giuliani, hey, just, you know, 1-800-CALL-FBI and you can get your information into us as like I would have to do. He's created a a process and we've reported that that involves um, Mr. Giuliani going to the U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh. We don't know why exactly that person was selected, but that does, to your point, suggest it's a little it's a little more special. It, it is something that was specifically created, at least, um, to handle this Ukraine information. So when we think about all of these different incidents, the Roger Stone sentencing, the rollout of the Mueller report, the special access that Rudy Giuliani is going to have the, to the Department of Justice— What does that tell us about the future of the Justice Department and its relationship with the president? Well, so in the wake of the Stone controversy, a lot of former Justice Department officials, Democrats, other legal analysts, legal scholars are saying that the Justice Department is just being politicized to a degree that they haven't seen before. They're seeing the department kind of bent to the will of President Trump in the Stone controversy, you can see that kind of most clearly. You can see clearly the tension between career prosecutors, you know, bureaucrats who weren't appointed by the president and the political leadership um, which wants to go a different way. I think it's important to say, I'm sure Bill Barr would defend this as, look, there's a reason that we have politically appointed leaders 
I am accountable to people. People know who I am. They know my name. You know, I can be impeached. I have to testify before Congress. He's resisted doing that sometimes. I am accountable, so I make the decisions. Career bureaucrats don't get to make these decisions. But what you do see here is it being exposed that decisions seem to be going the way President Trump wants them to go. And that is causing some alarm among former Justice Department officials and people who worked in that institution before. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. Roger Stone is expected to be sentenced by a judge next week. So unlike the day after the Iowa caucuses, we actually have results today from the New Hampshire primaries. What have we seen so far? Who won? Well, Bernie Sanders won. Let me take this opportunity to thank the people of New Hampshire for a great victory tonight. And in doing so, became the first candidate to unquestionably win a state. Of course, after Iowa, after that lengthy count, we had Bernie Sanders with the most votes, but Pete Buttigieg with the most delegates. Victories behind us, popular vote in Iowa and the victory here tonight. So you even saw Bernie Sanders in his victory speech last night saying we had won Iowa, which is disputed at this point. But uh, clearly he is the winner of New Hampshire. There's no doubt about that. And he'll try to turn that into momentum. We're going to Nevada. We're going to South Carolina. We're going to win those states as well. I'm Aaron Blake, senior reporter for The Fix. Though it's worth pointing out that very, very close behind him was Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, and that's the other major point here, which is that Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire in 2016 by 22 points. It was not close. This time it was very close and probably closer than we expected, judging by some of the late polls. Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire with 26% of the vote. Pete Buttigieg was second, about 1.5% behind. Amy Klobuchar was third at 20%. And bringing up the rear, both in single digits were Elizabeth Warren at 9% and Joe Biden at 8%. If we're looking at delegates, only the top three candidates got them, nine apiece for Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, and six for Klobuchar. So even as Pete Buttigieg did not get the victory. I admired Senator Sanders when I was a high school student. I respect him greatly to this day, and I congratulate him on his strong showing tonight. It's difficult to come away with this arguing that that was anything amounting to a disappointment for him. So many of you decided that a middle-class mayor and a veteran from the industrial Midwest was the right choice to take on this president. And it looks like a reaffirmation that he is a force to be contended with in this race. And thanks to you, a campaign that some said shouldn't be here at all has shown that we are here to stay. So in fourth place was Elizabeth Warren, in fifth place was Joe Biden. But the big surprise was that in third place was Senator Amy Klobuchar, who did, I think, surprisingly well in New Hampshire. Yeah, and that was one of the biggest takeaways here. Amy Klobuchar really needed a third place finish after a disappointing fifth place finish in Iowa. And really, I think maybe the most encouraging thing for her is it suggested a real form of momentum, especially after the debate on Friday. 
One moment that I think really stuck out from that, apart from just kind of a generally strong performance, was when she went after Pete Buttigieg. We had a moment the last few weeks, Mayor, and that moment was these impeachment hearings. For his comments about impeachment and how the whole thing was exhausting to people on the outside. But what you said, Pete, as you were campaigning through Iowa, as three of us were jurors in that impeachment hearing, you said it was exhausting to watch and that you wanted to turn the channel and watch cartoons. She basically argued that this is an important process and that it was too dismissive of the importance of what's happening in Washington. I think this going after every single thing that people do because it's popular to say and makes you look like a cool newcomer. I just I don't think that's what people want right now. She just generally went after Buttigieg in a way that I think surprised and impressed some people. Yeah, and I don't know how much her momentum is due to you know, necessarily going at Buttigieg and knocking him down because he did pretty well on Tuesday, as we've discussed. But it did suggest a kind of a formidability that maybe has been lacking in perceptions of Amy Klobuchar so far. And our colleague Jenna Johnson, she was at Amy Klobuchar's headquarters on Tuesday night and said that they were very happy with what happened in New Hampshire. Yeah, and they should be happy. She had more votes than both Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren combined. She is a real option in this race now, whereas before she was kind of an also-ran who maybe wouldn't last past New Hampshire. So it's going to be up to her to build upon this, but she has a, a seat at the table in a way that she quite simply didn't before. And I don't know if she would have gotten that if it was kind of a middling third-place finish rather than a pretty resounding one. So I want to talk a little bit about the actual number of votes that were cast for the candidates and whether we should be reading anything into that, specifically in the context of Senator Sanders, because he is the one candidate who was running in 2016. And he got a lot of votes in New Hampshire then and didn't get as many now. And I wonder what you think that says. Yeah, it was about half as much, actually, um, in in the election last night versus 2016. I think that's worth noting. These are voters that he had before who didn't vote for him again. They would seem to be voters he'd want to be able to get to in this election. But this is a much more crowded race. The vote was always going to be split more than it was in a two-candidate race in 2016. If I'm Bernie Sanders, I'm not sure that I'm too worried about that, even as you'd obviously like to have all of those voters that voted for you last time. And do we have a sense so far of demographically which candidate is shaping up to be the candidate for which demographic? Yeah, this has actually been pretty clear both in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Uh, Bernie Sanders is overwhelmingly the choice of young voters, those under 30, of very liberal voters, even liberal voters too. Pete Buttigieg has a much broader appeal. He's not particularly strong in any one demographic, but he does well across almost all of them, at least the ones we've seen so far, which I should note does not include minority voters. And then you look at a candidate like Amy Klobuchar, who had a strong showing on Tuesday. Her support is disproportionately older. It is disproportionately moderate. So you have kind of, if you look at those trio of candidates, you have Sanders with the younger liberal voters, Buttigieg, much more of kind of a consensus candidate that doesn't do particularly well with one demographic group. And then Amy Klobuchar kind of looking as the moderate candidate with a much older base of support. You know, whether any of those are what you want at this point, it remains to be seen. But certainly it does seem to be breaking down in those three lanes at this point. 
And I think one thing that I found really surprising in the lead up to to New Hampshire was just how many stories came out of people who were saying in the days leading up to the primary that they were still undecided, that they were still unsure of who exactly they wanted to vote for. I surprised myself. See, were you undecided as you sort of came in today? I lied to those people out there. There's somebody out there saying, anybody undecided? Are you undecided? Yeah. Just didn't want to get tangled up out there. And our colleague Sean Sullivan, he talked to some of these voters who were undecided. And it was really interesting to hear about how they were thinking about this race. Well, I thought it was going to be Amy or Elizabeth. Mm. But when I think about it, you know, I sort of went down the list as much as I am progressive in my values and the way I think this country ought to go, I don't think it's time right now. I think there's so much cleaning up to do. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable. According to the exit polls, this actually accounted for half of voters, 50% who said that they decided that in the last few days. Uh, those voters broke pretty strongly for Buttigieg and Klobuchar, whereas Bernie Sanders relied much more heavily on people who had decided earlier in the race. So that's the reason why Sanders's margin of victory was perhaps smaller than we thought it was. And presumably, especially for people who so far have been voting for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, would they theoretically have been people who would have started out this campaign season thinking that they were going to vote for Biden and and switched over? Yeah, if you look at the votes that especially Klobuchar got on Tuesday, it is the Biden coalition, essentially. She seems to have kind of taken over that. One question is, what do Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren do? They have had two disappointing showings uh, in each of the first two states. Biden insists he's pressing on. He went to South Carolina on election night, even though the race was in New Hampshire. There are real questions about whether he has the funding and whether he'll have a base of support moving forward. Warren, it's not clear where her next win might come from. Biden could win in South Carolina, but Warren doesn't seem to be well-positioned basically anywhere else at this point, and you wonder what her path to victory is. Buttigieg is kind of in the Biden lane to some degree, but as I said, his his support is actually pretty even across many demographics. He pulls in liberal voters. He can get both young and old voters. He seems to be building something of an electability case for Democrats if they want to have somebody who can maybe unite both sides of the party. But again, the big question, which we haven't seen answered yet, and other polls suggest he has a very big problem with, is can he win minority voters, especially black voters? He just doesn't have a pulse with them right now. And that'll start to be very real starting in South Carolina and then on Super Tuesday when many very diverse states will start voting. Aaron Blake is a political reporter for The Fix. And now, one more thing. An opinion from Monica Hesse, a columnist for the Style section. So I spent 48 hours going to Elizabeth Warren rallies and events, and every conversation about Elizabeth Warren becomes the same conversation about Elizabeth Warren for her fans. It starts off with, I love her. I'm inspired by her. I love her policies. I love who she is. I love her cardigans. I love her energy. I love her shoes. I love her dog. I love her skin. I love her health care. I love her child care. But then the conversation turns into something else. The conversation turns into, 
I love her, but I'm afraid that America doesn't, or that America loves her but won't vote for her, or that I'm afraid my moderate father-in-law won't vote for her, or I'm afraid the country isn't ready for her. So it's this fascinating scenario of really liking your candidate but being so trapped in a panic of electability that you yourself might not even vote for the candidate that you want to win and think deserves to win. I think in this election, we're haunted by a couple of ghosts. We're haunted by the ghost of 2016 and watching Hillary Clinton lose and how that somehow in people's minds has become this abstract panic that no woman can win. And then I also think we're haunted by the ghost of the past millennia of American and international history, which is how we think of women and how we think women should behave and how we react to them when they don't behave that way. So in this particular election, you see Bernie Sanders passionately yelling and it's looked at as being inspirational and righteous. What do you do with an industry that knowingly for billions of dollars in short-term profits is destroying this planet? I say that is criminal activity that cannot be allowed to continue. Thank you, Senator Sanders. And then you see Kamala Harris raising her voice, and it's looked at as being lecturing or like a harridan. Well, there was a failure of of states to to integrate public schools in America. I was part of the second class to integrate Berkeley, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a local decision. So that's where the federal government must step in. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Even the people who are saying, I don't even think of gender. I don't even think of Elizabeth Warren as a female candidate. I don't even think of Amy Klobuchar as a female candidate. We can't escape those ghosts. They haunt us, and the best we can do is is be aware of the ways that they haunt us. Almost without exception, every every Democratic voter that I talked to said that what they were looking for more than anything was a candidate who could beat Donald Trump. And again, there is this abstract fear that a woman can't, which is a really ridiculous fear because men have been losing elections for two centuries. And we never say, oh, maybe we should go with a woman next time because a man lost. But we're still in such new territory with having women as serious contenders to lead the country that I think people really get in their own heads in a way and they get trapped in these predictive conversations where instead of feeling like they can vote their hearts, they're voting for what they think some man in Ohio whom they've never met might theoretically want. The irony of thinking that way is that we get stuck in an idea of what we think America is rather than learning what America actually is. And if you could have voters vote for who they truly believed was the best candidate, then we would have a better temperature of how far the country actually has come and not be trapped in our fears of what the country used to be. Monica Hesse writes about gender for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Valentine's Day is coming up, and most people are thinking about chocolate. 
But we here at Post Reports are curmudgeons, so we're thinking about what really goes into making that chocolate. For that reason, we want to re-up a Post Reports story from last summer about the cocoa industry in the Ivory Coast and its use of child labor. We'll be sharing a link to that story on the Post Reports Facebook group, as well as on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.